So, uh, happy this morning in Spain and uh, tonight in uh, New Zealand to be speaking with Geoffrey Moussaev Masson. He was professor of Sanskrit at the University of Toronto. In the 1970s, he decided to apply for training as a psychoanalyst and graduated from the Toronto Psychoanalytic Institute as a Freudian analyst in 1978. That year, he moved to Berkeley, California, with the intention of setting up his own psychoanalytic practice. Instead, he went to Munich to learn to speak German and do research on the originator of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. There's much more to uh, Jeffrey's curriculum vitae and um, perhaps I will ask you, Jeffrey, to uh, introduce yourself a little bit as you see yourself today. Well, it's many years later now. I'm now 65 years old, mm -hmm. just at my birthday. Oh, yes, when's your birthday? March 28th. Aha. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, not, not just, but a little while ago. Right. But it, I suddenly feel like I'm a different person at 65, but I'm a, a father again. I have a 32-year-old daughter, and now I have a 4-year-old son and a 10-year-old son. Mm. So I've remarried. I'm living in New Zealand. I am primarily writing about animals and animal emotions, but I retain an interest in Indian studies to some extent, in false gurus to some extent, yes. uh, in psychoanalysis to some extent, and very much so in the Holocaust, uh, about which I may write something soon. Oh, really? And, um, you know, I just saw that uh, that film with Bruno Gantz about the last days of Hitler. Yes, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Well and um, so I, w I just was wondering what aspects of the Holocaust... Um well, I've become very interested in the problem of psychiatry, German psychiatry, during the war. The number of German mental patients and eventually... Jews who were gassed um, by German psychiatrists because they were different. So they weren't only killing Jews in the beginning, they were killing children who were deaf or blind or retarded in some way, and then they went on to kill adults, and then eventually these same psychiatrists were sent to the actual camps and the killing centers and killed Jews. So I'm interested in why it was that the psychiatric world did not pay much attention to this. People knew what was going on. It was covered by the term euthanasia, a very dangerous term even today. Yes. And I was shocked to see how indifferent the French, the Italians, the Americans were to what was going on in Germany even before the war. Well... You know, I've been pondering whether I'd say um, on this podcast, say this to you, but um, my grandfather was um, a Hungarian Jew, uh -huh. and uh, he was friends with, uh, had a relationship with Freud, and I remember being four years old and walking with him in the garden in the south of France, in the garden of his house, and there had been sexual molestation of uh, some little girls, friends of mine, two other little four or five-year-olds. And I remember my grandfather telling me how um, seductive, I mean, the, the molestation had occurred to me too. And I remember my grandfather giving me this whole talk about the fact that I was seductive and that I had seduced the gardener. How amazing. How extraordinary. Well, you know, that was, I think, the, the, one of the great moments in history and one of the worst moments in history when Freud changed his mind about this. Yes. And that's what I wrote about. I, I think he really put the world back by a hundred years. Yes. Yes. Because he couldn't face the truth. He did, very briefly. And it's almost as if he couldn't take much more. He was on the side of the women for a very short time. He believed them. 
He knew they were telling the truth. He knew that he was probably the first person to write about this at any depth. And then the minute his colleague said, oh, you must be paranoid, you must be crazy, he collapsed. Yes. He lost his courage. Yes. Well, and I think it was a tragedy for women, a real tragedy. Well, he didn't want to be rejected by the hair doctors, did he? Exactly. By the other hair doctors. Exactly what it was. When he saw the response of his colleagues and realized that he would never attain the kind of position he wanted to have in society, that his uh, practice would suffer, that his chances of having any kind of university career would be over, he caved in. But he didn't do so consciously. I mean, he he told himself a, uh, a pack of lies <laughs> and convinced himself that exactly what your grandfather said, that these children were seductive, that it was the children who desired the adults, which is, of course, an absurd idea. Yes, yes. And and why do you think that this was so easy to embrace for these men, the fact that well, children are seductive? Well, I think it was seductive. easy because many of them were the perpetrators. So, of course, they were looking for ways to exonerate themselves. They were looking for ways to make certain that they wouldn't be caught. I mean, many of the very people that Freud was talking to about his ideas were, in fact, guilty of what he was claiming happened. So they were hardly likely to jump up and down and say, of course, we, we have done it ourselves. We know about child abuse. We are the abusers. They said, oh, this is absurd. Right, right, right. And you helped me so much because when I read your books, um, it unraveled this complicated mess for me. I uh, I realized that I had been a victim of those lies, and it was a magnificent moment. And so I just want to salute you for your courage. Well, thank you so much. You know, there were a lot of women, and the, the people who really deserve the credit are the women themselves, because they had been saying forever, look, this happened to us. But society didn't want to hear it. Men certainly didn't want to hear it. Psychiatrists, above all, didn't want to hear it. And finally, it was Sigmund Freud himself who closed his ears and said, this is impossible, even though he'd had a moment when he realized that it was true. And it was that turnabout, I think, that was so decisive for everyone, because that was, when I was trained as a psychoanalyst, this is what we were taught. We were taught that women would come in and would tell us what they regarded as memories, and that we were to regard these as pure fabrication, as fantasies, as, as a wish fulfillment, as, as an impulse. <laughs> and absurd as that sounded, everybody that was in the class that I was attending, all the psychiatrists who were becoming trained, they all nodded sagely and wisely and said, yes, that's the case. So many women have come to me and told me they've been abused, and now I realize it's just pure fantasy. Right, right. Well, um, it's unfortunate. It's terribly unfortunate. But uh, uh, thanks to um, thanks to things coming to light, um, women now are being redeemed, and children are being perhaps more protected. Um, because of the compassion that has developed for this. To some extent, to some extent. Of course, there's been the backlash, you know. And now many, uh, I mean, there, there are problems all around because some of the men who before were saying there is no such thing now say, I'm the only person that can cure you. Uh -huh. you, have to come, you have to come to me. And then there's a group of people even further to the right of those psychiatrists who are saying, no, this is all absurd. Uh, these children have never been abused. These are false memories that are being implanted in their minds by unscrupulous therapists simply out to make money. True. True. So you've got complications, and I say... That there, of course, there's some truth to that. The very psychiatrists who said there's no such thing now claim they see it everywhere. But we do know something about the statistics of child abuse, and they're, they're really quite shocking. The most sophisticated research was done by an English sociologist by the name of Diana Russell. Uh -huh. And she found that 38% of girls before the age of 18 had suffered some form of sexual abuse. 
38 percent. That's huge. Some form of invasion. Yes. Some form of invasion of their private of their sexual privacy. Yes. 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 Unwanted. Unwanted. Absolutely. So, Jeffrey, um, do you have some? Uh, can you give me some idea of uh, how you think this um, this pain, this trauma, this kind of trauma can can be assimilated and lived in the best possible way? Well, that's a serious problem, and I'm afraid there is no easy answer to that. I'm not keen on therapy. Precisely because, after all, it was therapists who were the first to turn their back on this. Now, it's true that many therapists don't do that any longer. They are sympathetic. They do listen. But it's very hard to know in advance that you're going to get the right therapist. What if you happen to fall upon an older man who still believes it's a fantasy, but who doesn't say anything and simply listens to you? Or worse, what happens if you get somebody who's titillated? who's sexually excited by hearing about abuse, mm -hmm. that also happens. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for a patient or a client on the other side of the couch or the other side of a, of a psychiatric interview to know what the therapist is actually feeling or thinking. So I'm afraid it, it can be a dangerous situation. It can also be helpful. But I find that it's most often helpful with an older woman a woman who's had direct experience of sexual abuse in her own life and who is sympathetic and not judgmental and who is perhaps not high up in the hierarchy of psychiatry, yeah. I think they have a capacity sometimes to listen and to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I see. To sort of jump in here, um, do you see that uh, our relationship with animals... For instance, I've been living for 15 years with this Belgian cat named that I named Beber. I hope he likes it. Beber was the most famous cat in uh, French literature because it was Louis Ferdinand Céline's cat. Uh, so Céline's cat was named Beber. And um, do you think our relationship with animals, with uh, with close animals can perhaps be a healing influence. Oh, I definitely think that. In fact, when I was um, thinking of staying in the field, I, I, I imagined as a psychotherapist, no, not a Freudian analyst, mm -hmm. I thought I would like to do pet-oriented child psychotherapy, and that's where you bring small baby animals in with children and let them play with them. But then I realized that that's a, a very lovely thing to do and a healing thing, but that one shouldn't charge money for it. It's, it's something that should be natural. Children should always be around animals. Yes, yes. But I do think it's very healing for many reasons. For one, of course, they never judge us. And uh, for another, they are, dogs, for example, are simply so filled with love and get such pleasure from our company. And even cats, I'm amazed. I live with three cats now. And these three cats wait every evening for me to go for a walk on the beach. And I call in the house about five or six, just as it's starting to get dark. I, I call them and I say, walk on the beach. And all three of them come running from wherever they are. And we go for a walk on the beach. And I often have the, the two children and the three cats. And it's just wonderful. And I can't understand why they don't go by themselves. But they don't. They wait for me, and they go for long walks. We'll sometimes go for a, an entire mile along the beach. Amazing. Amazing. It's very healing for me, and it obviously gives them pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that, you know, they say that, uh, that cats uh, don't care in a certain way, but my cats always wait for me at the door. Absolutely. Oh, yes. like I think it. I think it's a myth that they're totally indifferent. It's just that they're harder for us to read than dogs. Dogs carry their hearts on their sleeves, so you always know what your dog is feeling. Cats are a little bit more mysterious. You don't always know what's going on in their mind, but they clearly have lots of feelings about us. Jeffrey, your your latest book is raising the peaceable kingdom. Am I correct Actually, about that, that? Not quite. That was okay. the, that was the last book that came out. My, my I have another book coming out next month. 
called Altruistic Armadillos Zen-like Zebras, <laughs> of 100 favorite animals. And this is a, a kind of personal encyclopedia of my 100 favorite animals. And your favorite animal, one of your favorite animals would be the armadillo? Uh, actually, no. <laughs> I see. I love armadillo. Oh, I think they're adorable, but I would, I would say whales are still, whales and elephants are probably my two favorite animals. But I've, I've, I've suddenly conceived a love of beetles and butterflies as well, so I'm expanding my circle here. <laughs> Would you speak about uh, perhaps first um, the Peaceable Kingdom? Your yes, the, the Peaceable Kingdom. What I, I wanted to see, I, I became so despondent after doing some research on the Holocaust and looking around me at the world today yes. and just thinking of the, what probably a hundred million people killed during our century in needless wars, and I wondered why is it that animals seem to escape this? There is nothing like genocide in the animal world. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what it would be like to raise animals that don't normally live together, mm -hmm. to bring them together from a very early age and to watch what happens. Mm -hmm. So I got a, a baby rabbit, two baby rats, two chicks, uh, three kittens, and a puppy. Mm -hmm. And I observed and participated for one year in their life together. We all lived together. Mm -hmm. And much as I hoped, everybody became tolerant, everybody became friendly, some became more friendly than others, but absolutely nobody, even the chickens and the rats and the, the, the rabbit, everybody played together. It was really quite a remarkable experience for me so I called that raising the peaceable kingdom now it was artificial because normally these animals would not come together and become friends but I wanted to see if it could be done if, if they were surrounded by goodwill and people simply played with them and we had all the neighbors especially the neighborhood children were delighted to come over every day and take the chickens for a walk on the beach and play with the rabbit in the yard and we allowed all the animals to be free even the rats mm -hmm. and I, I suppose one of the most astonishing things for me was to see how affectionate a rat can become one of the female we had two female rats and yes. one of them was just so entranced with us that she would find her way to our bed every night <laughs> and she would sleep at the foot of the bed right curled up between my toes oh. I, I, she was just absolutely adorable. This is, I mean, I understand this interspecies communication. I, I feel this very strongly with donkeys, for instance. Um, in this village, you hear donkeys like you do on an island in Greece. You, there are donkeys all over, and I, I feel like donkeys when they when they do their their sound. It's it's like a human sobbing sound. Mm. It's, it's it's quite extraordinary. So um, this next book, your next book, tell me about your next book, the one that's coming out in a month. Will it be coming out well, in the States? Yes, it's coming out in the United States. And it's an encyclopedia, but I tried to make it different than the ordinary encyclopedia. So it contains lots of opinions and lots of my own feelings about the animal that I write about and um, all the most fascinating facts I could discover about the animal. It was a very, it was much more difficult than I thought because I didn't, uh, I didn't realize how much knowledge I would have to have to be able to say something intelligent about an echidna or, or a hippopotamus or a mm -hmm. giraffe. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of thing you just know intuitively so I had to buy 500 books to work on this with and um, I had to get lovely photos I was very lucky because I got a lot of very beautiful photos from Franz Lanting in the United States mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. from Pavel German in Australia so they're each it's about three pages it's a 500 page book so they're mm -hmm. about 
three or four pages for each animal with a lovely photograph and a little bibliography and then kind of my thoughts about this animal. Tell me, Jeffrey, do you find that there there is uh, no gratuitous violence in the animal world? I have not found any gratuitous violence. I have not. And, I mean, the one exception could be among chimpanzees, but even that's not entirely clear. And I think it's interesting because they so resemble us. But on the other hand, you have the bonobos, you know, otherwise known as pygmy chimpanzees, and they they exhibit absolutely no aggression. Mm -hmm. What can we as as humans learn from this? Well, I mean, that's kind of the burden of that raising the peaceable kingdom. I I make the claim there that we have got to learn from these animals about tolerance and about friendship and about accepting difference. I think the most important thing for us, I mean, what I find so alarming in the world today is this return to nationalism. I was hoping by the time I was an adult, I remember thinking when I was very young, when I, I was living... Well, I lived in many countries when I was young, but I was in Switzerland, and I noticed how the Swiss were so aware of themselves as a separate nation, and I was I was just 15, and it didn't appeal to me, and I thought, by the time I'm 50 years old, which then seemed to me ancient beyond belief, <laughs> there will be no more borders, there will be no more passports, nobody will regard himself or herself as a member of any country, everybody will simply be a human being. And that has not happened. On the contrary, I think we've gone backwards in this sense. So that too many people are... are I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with being proud to be something. But mostly people, when they're proud to be one thing, are contrasting themselves with something else. Yes. And, you know, you see this in the former Yugoslavia. You know, the enormous hatred what Freud called le narcissisme des petites différences. Mm, the people yes. from the outside, you can hardly see a difference. Yes, yes, yes. But to the people in there, they say, oh my God, no. And I even saw this in Italy once. I was, I was visiting a, a small village and I'd mentioned that I had been in another village and they, 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 they were shocked. They said, but those are foreigners. <laughs> and by foreigners, they meant they were 20 miles away in this little mountain village, you know. And, it, and, I mean, it can be amusing, but there was also a sense that there was real hatred between groups. I mean, this is just old, ancient tribalism. And I think we have to lose it entirely. It, is it the scapegoat syndrome? I don't know what it comes from. I suppose it comes from our evolutionary past. I mean, after all, it's interesting to think that animals in the wild do not, by and large, form friendships. They'll leave each other alone. Uh-huh. So you'll see animals that, that manage to coexist without forming any kind of friendship. But you'd never find among them hatred. But they don't, nevertheless, they don't form friendships across the species barrier. They do if we force them to. Right. And that's one of the things that I object to in what I did, that it was an artificial experiment in a sense. It was a sort it, of Sarajevo before the war. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But if you observe the animal world, they don't normally come together with members of another species. However, within the species, they don't recognize the kinds of differences we do. Mm-hmm. They have hierarchy, some animals, but many animals don't. Mm-hmm. But even when they have hierarchy, it's extremely rare for one animal to kill another member of the same species over a dispute over hierarchy. They argue and they fight and they have rituals, but they rarely kill one another. And there's certainly nothing like mass murder. Why would this, some uh, animals have hierarchy and others not? What would be the function of that? Well, I think it's, and, and, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's ever answered it. Why there should be, I mean, dogs are hierarchical. Wolves, of course, are extremely hierarchical. Uh-huh. But, I mean, I would, I don't know the, the figures. I'd, I'd probably, just off the top of my head, mm-hmm. I'd say probably a quarter of all animal species are hierarchical. And it probably just comes because we, the, the, things are scarce. You know, food is scarce, and 
good sunning spots are scarce. <laughs> so somebody always wants to be there in front of you. And the minute you have arguments about that kind of thing, you get hierarchy. But a lot of that is artificial. A lot of it we create ourselves. So, for example, we talk about the pecking order in chickens, but you don't see that among wild fowl. Mm-hmm. You only see it in domesticated fowl because we force them to live under artificial conditions where they're not able to escape one another. Right. Yeah. Can we can we speak about um, love between animals, though? Within, you mean... In our perception, of course. I mean, can we... Oh, yes, I think we definitely can. I mean, I have no doubt. Just watching even an animal that's supposed to be a solitary animal, like cats. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see sometimes... I mean, they even have... They really have very strong interspecies love. One of my cats just stares up at me every evening for like an hour with absolute total devotion. And there's no reason. It's nothing to do with being fed. She'll often do this right after she's eaten or when she's not the least bit hungry. She's just staring at me. And I can see she's looking. She blinks her eyes. She looks at me. It's like, I love you. Bliss. And she really does. And they often love one another. Two of my cats are absolutely inseparable. They sleep together. They walk together. They eat together. They share everything. So they're they're meant by evolution to be a solitary species, and yet they're not really solitary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they definitely exhibit love. And I see no problem in describing what many animals feel for one another, and sometimes for us is love, just as I have no problem in saying what we feel for an, uh, an animal is love. I don't see much of a difference between the love we can feel for a cat and the love we feel for our own children. Do you think no love. Do, do you believe in reincarnation? I do not. Okay. I used to believe in it when I was young. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I grew up with a guru in my family and I wrote a book about that called My Father's Guru. Paul Brunton, the English mystic, yes. lived in our house for many, many years. And he, of course, was a great believer in reincarnation and tried to convince me that he and I had lived many lives together in the past. Um, and when I was very young, that was very seductive. Of course. I don't mean in the sexual sense. I mean yes. just intellectually. Yes. And I thought that it was just such a lovely idea, and I wish it were true. I wish I could believe it today. I'd love to think that my life won't end uh, at 85 or 95 or whenever it does. I can't bear the thought of my life ending, yeah. and I would love to believe that it persists in some way, and I'd love to believe that I'll come back as a different person, but I don't see any evidence for it. I wish it were true. It's it's like I don't I have no idea about that either, but I mention it because I think, you know, why would I go one morning to the hairdresser in in Brussels 15 years ago and there's this cat that had kittens and I look at this one kitten and and I say well I'll come back in two months for this kitten and we're still together so uh, I there's a way that it seems like animals and humans may choose each other well I'm sure they do I'm sure they do animals do definitely choose and of course animals like us have preferences and some of these are rather mysterious you know how How do we marry the people we marry? Why did you marry Timothy Leary? <laughs> It's a <no> mystery. <laughs> I'm sure you ask yourself that often, but I'm sure there are reasons for this, and some of these reasons must be very profound. Yeah. But I don't think they need be metaphysical or right. otherworldly. Or uh, I just think that they're psychologically very complicated. Jeffrey, this brings me to ask you uh, a question I'm fascinated by. Um, how do you feel about all this metaphysical, all these metaphysical philosophies and this need that um, humans seem to have to um, to invent stories that? that make them feel connected to something greater than than themselves or something other. Well, I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the need. It's just that, I mean, it's a little bit like therapy. I'm sympathetic to people 
who want to be in therapy, who need help, who, who want to talk to somebody. Yes. I'm not sympathetic to the therapists who claim to have the wisdom to give to these people. So in the same way, I'm sympathetic to this desire to be part of something greater. I feel it. Everybody feels it, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's part of our evolutionary history. I don't think there's ever been a human who hasn't felt this at some point. But I'm not sympathetic to the people who claim, I have the answer. You must join my religion or my sect or, um, you know, give yourself to me in some way, whether it's financial or sexual or physical or... Mm -hmm you know, join my tribe. I'm not sympathetic to that because I don't think that there are any answers to this. I don't think anyone, I don't think any religion, I don't think any cult, I don't think any philosophy, I don't think any metaphysic has ever found the answer. And I don't think we will ever find an answer to this. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there is a longing in everyone to be part of something greater. And the closest we come to this is when we love somebody or some other sentient being. When we, when we lose ourselves in love for another person, that seems to me the closest we're ever going to get to this higher state, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. To another person or, or another creature. Another person, it can be an animal. Yes. And I definitely, I do not, I'm not one of those people who thinks that people who love animals more than people are defective in any way. I think all of us choose who we love, and sometimes we love animals, and sometimes we love people, and sometimes we love both, and it's all the same love. How do you see the relationship between uh, uh, your young children and animals? Well, that fascinates me because I still believe that young children have a much easier time connecting with animals than adults do. And if they're not discouraged from expressing their feelings for animals, they grow up with a very intense and very intimate relationship with animals. I've seen this with all three of my children, my daughter who's now 32, Mm -hmm. And my four-year-old and my ten-year-old, they're all very closely connected to animals. Of course, I've encouraged it. and But I think it's a natural state. And the only reason that children don't do this is when some adult stops them or forbids them or warns them away or won't permit them to do it. But that all children have a spontaneous interest in animals. Where do you... Uh well, what have you come to think about where, how we as humans have developed such violence? Why, why do certain of us, why is there such violence? You know, this is, I think this is one of the great mysteries that has not, we haven't even come close to solving this yet. And I think that we're not likely to solve it. I don't understand it at all. And, I, you know, it's not universal. I mean, well, I should say it is universal, but it's not, not everybody has it. There's some people that seem to be completely devoid of aggression. And I have to say, although um, obviously any kind of generalization like this is bound to be wrong in many instances, nevertheless, it has been my experience that women in general tend to be much less violent than men. They're less interested in war, they're less interested in hierarchy, they're less interested in quarrels and in hatred, uh, in genocide. I mean, if you look at all the great wars in history, almost all of them have been started by and have been indulged in and engaged in by men. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's still something of a puzzle to me. I suppose it has to do with the fact that women give birth, and therefore they have uh, a much closer relationship, love relationship, with other human beings than men do. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are women who are not like that, and there are men who are like that. But I would say, certainly in my experience, oh, I would say something like eight out of every ten women I ever meet seem to have this capacity to love. And only two out of ten men I meet have that. <laughs> that's, 
that's been my experience, and that's why I feel much closer to women than I do to men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you are you optimistic about uh, the future of um, of our survival, of our thriving? I don't know. It you know it becomes. I mean, sometimes I feel we've made progress. After all, we've given up slavery, and civil rights has made progress, and women have have, have greater and greater equality with men than, than they did, you know, a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at things a hundred years ago, we've definitely moved forward. Mm-hmm. But whether in the next hundred years the human race will even survive is not entirely clear. And we are, I mean, we are the architects of our own destruction. And we're probably the only animal that has ever achieved the ability to destroy the entire planet upon which it depends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I find that quite alarming. I mean, I saw that film by Al Gore the other day, An Inconvenient Truth, and I was very moved by it. I thought it was a remarkable film. I only wish he were president today. Um, But, you know, his warnings about global warming are, are very serious. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the way we live and our refusal to recognize other the importance of other beings. And I mean, I'm astonished that um, one one cause of global warming that he did not mention, although he knows it's the case, mm-hmm. is the number of animals that we raise to kill for food. Absolutely. Uh, there's no question, but that if the world were completely vegan we would not be facing these problems right now. Not the world is not going to go vegan, but that doesn't mean that it isn't the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. Somebody said something that really got me the other day. They're, they're vegetarian, and I asked them if they eat eggs, which is uh, one of those stupid questions that one asks. <laughs> and he said to me, oh, Don't you understand that's almost meat? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. I mean, I gave up eggs when I realized how much suffering is involved for the chicken who has to lay the egg because they're treated as if they were just machines. They're not treated as living beings. But I wonder if there's there's pleasure, uh, if a a chicken has pleasure in laying an egg on the death day. They have pleasure in laying it, but they, that's only because they think they're going to see a baby come out of it. Right. If it was just for us to make an omelet, they would not get any pleasure from it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So you are, you are vegan. I'm a vegan, yes. Yes. And for many Reluctantly, years? because it's not easy, especially when you travel or you live abroad. It's very difficult and takes a lot of effort and a lot of willpower and uh, I mean I do being half French I mean my father was French I I appreciate good French food but it's almost impossible when you're in France to to be a vegan so I I call myself a reluctant vegan I think it's the right thing to do both for for the sake of the animals first of all but also for the sake of our planet and also for our own physical health so there are three good reasons to be vegan but that doesn't make it easy Right, right. But then to come back to uh, animals, animal species are extinct, uh, are becoming extinct at a great, uh, at a great speed uh, at this point. And I was wondering how you feel that affects our own survival uh, in the long run. Well, yes. I mean, my goodness, the number of species, both plant species and animal species, rapidly becoming extinct because of what we're doing is really very alarming. And you don't have to be an animal rights activist to recognize the the dangers here. I mean, if you just think of all the plants that are disappearing, which could contain cures for cancer, when you think of the whole store of knowledge, you know, how we won't be able to understand these animals once they're gone. And, of course, the diversity has been has been part of our planet since the very beginning, and it's only now, only really in the last, I'd say, 20 or 30 years that we're really seriously beginning to deplete the diversity of the planet. And the net result of that is going to be our own destruction. There's no question of it. What would you say to people who 
are listening to this podcast about what one person can do to um well what to help can to actually make a lot of difference i mean i you know sometimes i despair and i think well what's the difference whether i'm a vegan or you're a vegan and 10 of my friends are vegans i mean there are billions and billions of people on this planet and they're all marching towards destruction and they're all doing you know driving suvs and eating tons of meat but if you think about it if just one person decides not to do it over the course of a lifetime it comes out to something like 2,000 animals are saved so you're you know you're having that much impact on maybe 2,000 animals over the course of your lifetime that's considerable and if you talk to, you know, if you convince 10 other people, well, then you've got 20,000 animals. <laughs> so, I mean, each of us, in every act, I find, even though it's, it's sometimes painful for me to have to tell somebody in a restaurant, no, I'm sorry, I won't eat that because it has butter, when enough people do it and they start to think and they say, gee, what's wrong with butter? Oh, I see, it's made from milk. And what's wrong with milk? Oh, well, the cows have to suffer. I see. How exactly do they suffer? You know, once somebody becomes curious about this and starts to investigate, then you've achieved something really quite special. And I think all of us can do this in our life simply by living our lives in a certain way that is an example to someone. I don't like preaching. I don't like to go to a dinner party and say, oh, no, what's the matter with you? How can you do this? How can you be so cruel? But when people ask me, I certainly tell them. Well, perhaps it's sort of like um, um, what we can do is have relationships with animals and perhaps realize that our relationship, our love to one animal is not an isolated once again, it is not an isolated... Well, yes, indeed. I mean, that, you know, I'm amazed that people don't make that step more often. I mean, if we can love our dogs and our cats and our parrots as much as we do, or our horses or our bulldogs, <laughs> why couldn't we think that the animals on our farm that we're, that are there to be eaten, like chickens and cows and pigs and sheep and ducks and geese are every bit as capable of the same kind of of feelings and could show us the same sort of affection that these other animals do if we gave them the chance that they're no less deserving of our respect and our concern and they're as much entitled to live their life as any dog or cat is or any child uh, during the Holocaust. Or any child, indeed. During the Holocaust, indeed. yeah. During the Holocaust, that's right. And when we, we dehumanize people or we take away the sentience from sentient beings, mm -hmm. and they, well, they don't really feel, we're turning them into ciphers, we're turning them into numbers, we're turning them into machines, and we're using them for our own ends. And no sentient being should ever be an end to any other being. Uh -huh. This is very important. Every sentient being is an end in his or herself. They're all entitled to their life, and they're all equally important. And I'm beginning to believe that this goes very, very far. I mean, I used to think of that only, well, when I was ignorant, of course, I thought of it as only as humans. Mm -hmm. And now... I, I now believe that even insects have a right to exist and that we shouldn't wantonly destroy anything, even trees. I'm very reluctant. I don't think I would. I've built a very beautiful home here in New Zealand out of wood. I wouldn't do that again. Uh-huh. I do not believe in cutting down trees. I don't even take maple syrup any longer because I don't like the way they wound the maple trees. Oh, really? And I mean, this, this, this is the essence of systems thinking. Of thinking well, as life. I mean, as people inter make fun of me, of course, but I, I think that in a couple hundred years, people will look back and say, gee, how could they have simply cut down all those trees? Yeah, yeah. To make houses or whatever, to make, to make boxes. To use mud. I mean, there are all kinds of innovative, and I think in that sense, the world is slowly changing. There are more and more people who are interested in. Well, you know, you look at permaculture and you look at all the kinds of um, new 
new forms of architecture using using renewable resources. I mean, all of this is beginning to take off now, and I just hope it's not too late. Well, you see, this is what Future Primitive is is about. This website, futureprimitive.org, uh, uh-huh. it's about investigating with people like you um, how we can be a different society. I don't feel we can heal the society as it is, but I think that we in ourselves can be different societies. I think so too, and I think you know that the real hope is is the young children. And when I see my my little four year old now, he's the first four year old I've ever met who's a principled vegan. He's a vegan out of ethical concerns, and he's very strong about it. And he says, "I will not eat cheese because it's made with rennet, and rennet comes from the stomach of sheep. I will not eat it." And he's, you know, he stamps his little foot, and he really means it. Mm. He has absolute principles. Now, of course, he's heard us talk, but yes. it's really his own thinking that he's using there. Yes, yes. It, it hasn't been snuffed out. No, it has not. And yeah. It's wonderful to see. And I think, you know, if there were more and more of these young children like that, I, I just find that astonishing. There's a woman at Harvard who's doing her Ph.D. thesis in the School of Education on children who come from families where everybody eats meat and they, before the age of 10, decide they're not going to do it. And I just find that astonishing that there are these children who have the moral capacity to say no to their parents and to the society around them. And, you know, if you look at Piaget, he claimed that no child of 8 years old could could have such a moral value system. It would be aye, aye, aye. And he was wrong. He was wrong. wrong about that. <laughs> yes. Thank yes. God. Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, what's the name of this woman who's doing this research? I don't know her name. I okay. saw it. It was sent to me on the web. But she's at the School of Education at Harvard University. She's writing her Ph.D. on it. And there's a professor there who's become very interested in that precisely because he believed that both Kohlberg and Piaget were wrong in their views about when morality begins. Yes. He thinks it starts much earlier than we have uh, been led to believe. And I think this is very interesting research. Would you say uh, that a morality would be... Uh the ability to continue to understand how we are we are a part of each other all sentient yes, i think that is the that's the very essence of morality to recognize our similarities this is what's so hard and this is what i think I'm, that's why i'm so astonished that this 4 year old my son yes. is capable of this he really is i can see it in him and i can see how easily something like that could be snuffed out if you had adults around who simply would not permit this child to express that and made fun of him or ridiculed him yeah. or mocked him, then he would probably lose it. But if he's encouraged and if he's allowed the room to grow these ideas, I think that most children would do that. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Would you say his name? His name is Manu. Manu. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, I definitely think that we have a lot to learn from children. We definitely do. I agree with you there. I like to say that uh, they they run they run the ship. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Jeffrey, um, if you feel comfortable with that, soon we'll come around here. Um, so I want to ask you. Um, if you would like, what would you would you like to say? If there's any more you'd like to say, or say about your new book, or about any book tour that you will be on? Well, I'm on my way to the United States now. I'm going to Berkeley. Yes. Um, uh, at the end of this month, and I'm going to. Uh, I'll be in Berkeley, California, giving a talk at Black Oak Books about um, kind of what we've been talking about. How my how I've moved from Sanskrit to psychoanalysis to animal emotions. You know, what is 
what is the connection? What is the overarching theme there? What is it? What I is the connection? What is the well, connection? While I, <laughs> while I have you right here. Yeah, I think it has to do with the recognition of something that has been neglected. I think I've always been fascinated by seeing some truth that people have, but which society in general has overlooked or refused to to engage with. So, you know, when I was doing Sanskrit, I, I, I got very upset with the power of the gurus, and I was fascinated by the few people who could step back from that and take an objective look, and then I moved to psychoanalysis, and I was fascinated with Freud's initial recognition that women were hurt and were sexually abused and then his inability to maintain that truth and how easy it was for society around to agree with Freud because they didn't want to face it either. And then when it came to animals, the same thing about animal emotions. I found that most scientists were very reluctant to admit that animals could have what we call the higher emotions, that is compassion and altruism and friendship and love and mm -hmm kindness towards one another, although now that's changing. So I've always been interested in these areas that have been overlooked or neglected, but I think tying them all together, there's something that has to do with compassion. I guess I'm absolutely fascinated with how how we develop compassion and and how it could be, is there any way that we could somehow facilitate the the creation of compassion in small children and then the maintenance of that compassion throughout life you know how what is it what is necessary and i haven't i don't have the answers yet but i believe that there are certain people that seem to have a gift for compassion that, mm -hmm. and extended very widely and very broadly mm -hmm. and I think we need to study those people but they're not always the people that we have generally seen as saints I, they're not the Albert Schweitzers and the, mm -hmm. and the Gandhis uh, of the world they're, they're often very obscure people people that nobody has ever heard of mm -hmm. and that fascinates me and I'm, I'm not sure how to get a handle on trying to discover what it is about these people. You know, what is it that allowed ordinary Danish people to save the Jews of Denmark hmm. when other countries didn't bother? France did almost nothing, uh, and most countries did very little to save, especially Jews from other places. Yeah. But Denmark did, and, and I'm, I'm curious about that. What enables some people to do 